friends. Welcome back to the show. Today I am in Amanda Carpenter. You're like your house right now. You're in my house. Yes. So we just finished up a lovely dinner with your gorgeous husband and our mutual friend Jay, who we don't, we don't need to comment on his appearance. But uh, <laughs> And now we're going to talk about your book. Love it. Yeah. Um, you wrote once before. Yes. And there's been a crazy story for this book to come out, but I'm very excited that it is out. Me and too. you are, we're recording this, it's like two weeks before the release day. Yeah. And one of my most common questions that I ask people after a book like this comes out is, do you have any vulnerability hangover? Because there's a lot of vulnerability in this book. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes, I feel, yeah, when I first started talking about the book, when it got really real and I started doing podcast episodes like mm-hmm. this and starting to talk about the content in the book or mm-hmm. when we sent the manuscript to friends of mine like Jay, our mutual friend, to endorse it, I wanted to uh, pull the covers over my head and not get out of bed. Like I felt truly, yeah, that vulnerable hangover, like that's a great way to put it. Um, But I will say the more I'm talking about it and the more I'm doing this, the more comfortable I'm getting and the less like scary it feels. So I'm starting to feel like, okay, vulnerability is really hard at first, but it's like a muscle. And as you as you use it, yeah. you get stronger. It gets a little lighter. It gets a little easier. So I'm feeling more at peace. Yeah, it makes sense Like that you would develop it like a muscle. In what way do you feel like you've developed... Is it like more patience for dealing with being seen? Is it? Is it... In what way do you feel like it's developing? Yeah, great question. For me specifically, I have noticed that people tend to be more gracious than not. Now, they may not always be gracious and kind to my face, but what I will say is I think I'm getting less scared of being vulnerable and coming out about things that I know or fear might be perceived as really yeah. bad or I don't I don't know, like anything I'm scared to put out there that I feel really vulnerable vulnerable about. I I think I'm repeatedly being surprised by how well received it is and by how much more people relate to me when I'm willing to kind of take off the mask, not impress, and just be super raw and real. Yeah. Um, so that's really encouraged me to continue to do that because here I thought for so long and lived my life very much like only putting out the best of myself and trying to impress and make a good impression. And yeah, that'll that'll get you into certain rooms. That'll do good in some ways. But I think what actually uh, creates a safe space for people and a place that they can relate and find solidarity and hope and that they want to actually bear their soul is when I go first. So this whole book is me going first and it's been a lot of practice talking about it leading up to the release. Yeah. So I I get the idea initially from Brene Brown, but then it's been lived out so many times in in a church context. And then obviously to the podcast, I've heard this from so many people, just talking with someone uh, a couple months ago, talked about, uh, it was Steph Curry's mom and her book. She talked about almost aborting uh, the pregnancy that became Steph Curry. And you're like, Mm. oh, wow. Like that's a, our culture is different without Stephen Curry in it. So so her talking about that is like, uh, she felt like this anxiety and what I find over and over again, and this is Brene Brown's line, is that vulnerability in other people looks like strength. In me, it looks like weakness. Yes. But you're hearing grace from people as they're being... Uh, when you say receiving grace from people, could you flesh out like what that grace looks like? How, how does that present? Yeah. I just think it's anything that I've put out there or that's in the book that I'm like scared to share or I feel shame around or have once felt shame around. And I think they're going to like... 
I don't know, throw stones at me for lack of better words. Like that's yep. sort of going to be the response. More often it's met with, oh my gosh, thank you for sharing this. Like I feel so much less alone. I went through the same thing. I made that same choice. Um, so it's it's graciousness in that sense of relatability, uh, sometimes just appreciation. Other times it's their first time of coming out about something that they've done or like they're relating, but for the first time they're willing to like kind of come out about it. And so it's an invitation for connection. I, th- I just, I'm starting to realize that I think vulnerability is a prerequisite for connection. It is a, it is an essential to connection. I think if you're not willing to get vulnerable, you can only connect on a certain level. And so if you're willing to be more and more vulnerable and to like kind of bear your soul and be real with people, you will have greater connection. So I guess another way to put it is like vulnerability breeds intimacy. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about like physical intimacy. I just mean just in general intimacy. Um, And I think we all crave that. We all crave intimacy that is deeper than the surface. Yeah. We met the weekend for longtime podcast listeners, the weekend of Jason Palooza. Yes. And that weekend I also met Annie Downs. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people think that they're Annie's best friend, mm. partly because she's so willing to be vulnerable and people feel connected to her because she gives all these places where we can connect to her in her own struggles because even if her struggles are different than mine, totally. we all know struggle. And so yeah. that's like what you're talking about, like intimacy comes out of vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah. And then just to circle back to your point on Brene Brown, I know I could quote her all day long and what you said about vulnerability is true, but also she talks about how it's hard to hate people close up. And I think that's what you find with vulnerability too, is there's a time and a place to be vulnerable. And sometimes that is on social media, but more often than not, it starts one-on-one face-to-face with people. Um, It's very rare that you sit across the table from someone and you really, you know, share something you're embarrassed about or you're ashamed about and they meet you with like shame or hate or yeah it's it's that's i feel like that's very rare i think because we empathize with people when they're willing to open up and um yeah i just i think it's so important i always say there isn't a single person we wouldn't love if we knew their story and i know to some people that sounds like corny or a little fluffy but i really believe it's true it's a theory that i've put to the test time and time again and so this book was also my way of saying like is this true of me too yeah like Will people still love me if they know my story? Um, And what I'm finding, and I don't mean this in like a haughty way or or whatever, but what I'm finding is that they actually love me more. They love me more because I'm willing to like expose the mess and my scars and like the human that I am uh, instead of kind of portraying the person that they that I've either wanted them to think that I was or that they have thought that I was. And so I kind of lean into that more sometimes where it's like I'm on a pedestal when I come down from that very intentionally and say like, no, here's who I really am. Uh, Here's all of me Mm -hmm. and share my story. I think it not only the intimacy piece, but, but also, yeah, it's just, it's the opposite of shame. I think we, we fear that it's going to be met with shame, but it's not. Yeah. Okay. So what do you think is the opposite of shame? Oh gosh. Well, I'll, I'll, we'll work on this one together. Yeah. Like the opposite of shame. I've never thought of this question. Like I've never tried to process this, but it seems like what shame does is it pulls us away from people. Mm-hmm. When I feel shamed, it's like, I'm going to hide from everyone. Yeah. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. Yep. Uh, I, I was naked. And so I hid, isn't, I feel like that's totally. the response for shame for me. And so if, if the opposite of, of that is connection, love, love intimacy, yeah. right? Like, isn't yeah. that kind of what you're describing? Absolutely. Totally. Okay, so second ago, you just said you intentionally came down off the pedestal, but it was intentional. And yeah. to, like to talk about the book, even 
Because I know uh, those who did the uh, pre pre order, yeah, received a copy of the first chapter. Yep. In which there is like plenty of stuff in there, and oh, yeah. so you've been, you were intentional to put it. And just for for my for my listeners, uh, you tell a story about uh, um, sharing information about an unwed, maybe teenage girl, um, in which you didn't seem to, in hindsight, um, like the decisions you made for how you transmitted that information. Absolutely, I yeah. gossiped straight up. Yeah, just one of. One of many mistakes that I've made that have cost me a lot in the end. Yeah. Absolutely. So you start with that story, uh-huh. and then you also talk um, uh, talking about stepping outside of your your marriage. Yeah. And infidelity. Yeah, that's typically not like first chapter material of a book. It's nope. It first, does. Yeah. That. So let's talk about the intentionality <laughs> of those who may get more to them later. Later, but like. What made you be intentional to put that at the beginning of the book? Yeah, so two things. Number one, I didn't want to. I didn't want to at all. I actually really tried to write a totally different book. And then when I knew I was writing this book, I tried to write it but leave some of that out. Yeah. And uh, I would say a couple things happen. Number one, everyone uses different language for this, but I will just describe it in my language, which is I felt like the Holy Spirit made it very, very clear that I was to tell the full truth Mm. and to not withhold. And I didn't like that because... There's like a difference between when you're like vulnerable, but it's not going to hurt you if people like know and vulnerability that's like, whoo, this is really like painful. I don't like there's just a difference. It's the difference between saying like, oh, I I messed up. I yelled at my husband and said a swear word versus I stepped outside of my marriage and I was unfaithful and I had to come to him and like come clean about it. There's like a big difference. Like I can be vulnerable about things. Like I feel like people often say like, oh, you're along my journey. They've said, oh, you're so vulnerable. You're so vulnerable. Well, I was selectively vulnerable. Mm -hmm. That's so easy. It's, you know, it's not to go off on a super long tangent, but it's, it's similar to generosity. Someone could say, oh, you're so generous. You're so generous. You're so generous, but you're not actually being generous because I think generosity, only the person who's, who's giving can know whether or not they're truly being generous based on their personal uh, situation financially and in, and in other ways. And to be honest, I think generosity requires feeling it. You got to feel it. If you don't yeah. feel it, you're not really generous. You're just like nice. Yeah, generosity is what's left over. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and you got you to gotta feel it. If you don't feel it, you're probably not being generous. Yeah, like exactly. If it doesn't hurt you at all or doesn't cost you anything, that's just nice. You're not generous. The same thing with vulnerability. You can be selectively vulnerable, but it's not real vulnerability. It's just you're, you're being nice and you're, you're playing, possibly playing the game uh, of knowing like, oh, you have to share enough that people like, you know, you, you see it yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah. There's like a difference between like this false vulnerability that's just like almost like a false humility and it's just like, oh, I'm going to put just enough out there to like, make people see that I'm trying not to be perceived as perfect versus, oh, I'm going to bear my soul and like tell you like the worst parts of myself, which for me was what I felt like I needed to do. It's what I felt like the Holy Spirit was nudging me to do. And then it's also when my editor read my manuscript, you know, she just kind of said, I feel like there's something missing. And I, I just want to remind you that your only job is to tell the truth and the whole truth. And I will help you like uh, discern it and make it more appropriate and, and tweak it. But she kind of just said, Amanda, I want you to make a mess on the pages and tell the truth. Your only job is to tell the truth. Yeah, she repeated that to me, and it was so helpful. That's the job of a writer. Like you, you have to tell the truth, and so y- your truth, your story, what's honest is, uh, like there's that. <laughs> it's even hard for me to like conjure up the words because 
I'm in your home and just had uh, dinner with your husband and I, I've known him as long as I've known you. And so it's an awkward situation, even just for me. It's like, hey, I'm friends with y'all. Yeah. And when you put this out there, there's family members, there are friends who didn't know this about y'all's story. Correct. And you decided it still needed to be in there because you had to tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there was a whole period of time where for those that didn't know that we were close to, we began to let them in on it before the book, you know, made its way uh, towards the release. And we made sure we sat down with the family that we felt we wanted and needed to, to disclose that. And we didn't want people to, that we love and that care about us to feel like this huge shock when they heard about it or read it. But at the same time, uh, and I don't know if it's okay to like get into the weeds on it. I talk about in the book, one of the best things that we did to heal, I think, um, and I'm so grateful for my husband because it was ultimately his decision. When we were in counseling and the our counselor at the time said, you know, Amanda's clearly very, very remorseful, very repentant, wants to be with you. Um, do you want to be with her? Do you forgive her and want to make this work, even though it's going to be a lot of work? And he said, yes, absolutely, which I'm so grateful and she said, well, then one of the one of the biggest things I'm going to advise you to do is to not run and tell a bunch of people. I think that right now you're in an emotionally sort of fragile state. She didn't say to keep it secret. She didn't say to like be ashamed and keep it a secret. But she said, be really cautious about who you let in on this, yeah. especially when it was very fresh. Now, How we're talking we about talk? yeah. six years ago right okay. now. So about six years ago. Um, and so she just said like, you need wise counsel. You need people. You can certainly go to friends. You can certainly go. But like, especially with family, she really said, if you want this to work, running to, let's say, my in-laws at the time, uh, not only would they have probably said a lot of things that maybe they don't actually mean, but in the moment, you're just really upset and emotional and things are heightened. But it could have really swayed how Eric navigated, that's my husband, his own healing um, as we as a couple navigated that too. I, I don't know if that fully makes sense, no, yeah, but makes, yeah. we say all the time that is, we've talked to now lots of couples who have gone through this. I mean, this is, we are constantly in contact with couples who are navigating some form of distrust or trust being broken and repair. And that that's one of the things we say is don't keep it a secret. You definitely need to be rallied around and supported and have accountability and some wiser counsel in your life. But if you can find a way not to, to disclose this type of thing to the people that like family who are naturally biased, who are naturally going to have a harder time with this, that's probably for the best. Because again, like in Eric's case, he was an emotionally fragile state, wanted to make it work, but yeah, emotions are heightened and, and it was fresh. And the last thing he needed was like his mom or his dad or whoever. I'm just using them as an example. They've been wonderful. But as an example, at that time, he couldn't care for their emotions and hold space for yeah. that. It just would have probably caused things to be more messy. And honestly, just he wanted to discern for himself what he wanted and not be swayed by anyone else's opinions or thoughts. Mm. I mean, that's a prime time. You hear it all the time. Like some big thing happens in a marriage or in any relationship. And if people run their mouths really quickly and it, it just becomes a, a gossip fest and so-and-so has an opinion and, oh, once a cheater, always a cheater. You hear all these things. Um, and I'm really grateful we didn't have to go through that. Brene, uh, speaking of St. Brene, again, <laughs> since we've referenced her so many times, she's got this line where she talks about uh, authenticity and vulnerability, and she goes, when my recovery is dependent upon how you respond, I'm not ready to share it with you. Yes. And so there's some truth to, there's certain layers of people that 
you're not ready to communicate this to. Obviously, I don't think anyone needs to be struggling with something like this on their own. Totally. But I, I hear what you're saying connects to the wisdom that I've already seen to be true of. If I can't resp- if I'm going to react to whatever you do, and that's going to uh, color however I'm going to choose to live, like I'm not there. But if I'm able yeah. to respond to whatever you say, uh, independent of your feelings, based on what I believe is the true response, then I'm ready to start talking about it. Absolutely. And so for me, I came to that place sooner than my husband. I think it took him longer to get to a point where he was ready to be open about that, both with like just some of our friends. And then obviously publicly when I decided that I was wanting to share this in the book, he's the first person I went to to say like, I wrote the truth. Can you read it and tell me like, can I include this or not? And, mm-hmm. and he read it and he said, he said, yeah. Um, and he said, I'm terrified. And it was really sweet, but he was just so protective of me. He's like, I don't want people to view you as the sum of one mistake. And I know uh, that's been kind of the hard thing for him through all this is it doesn't, he's, happy to defend his choice or to explain to people how we navigated healing and why Mm -hmm. he does fully trust me and where we're at. Um, But he's just like, man, I would just hate for that mistake and you opening up about it to cost you opportunities or credibility um, or lose respect from people in which to know me is to know I don't really care anymore. I, I really like have come full circle with the whole impression management thing and I just don't care. Um, but yeah, he loves me and wants to protect me. And so he definitely felt nervous about it being in the book, but at this point is fully on board and supportive and yeah. sees how much it's, we're able to help people. Cause as they hear us going first, it's been crazy. The amount of people that are reaching out and just have said, Oh, seeing you, I had someone DM me the other week saying my husband and I are one year out from my, uh, mistake during our marriage. And to see a couple who's, mm-hmm. you know, mo- more than quadruple that away from it, thriving and living a really beautiful life that uh follows jesus and is on a mission like yeah, gives yeah. me hope that we'll get there yeah because they were where we once were yeah. so it's you, been really you mentioned sweet. the book that even before like the book came out that you've uh i think your language is like we led first you you yep. were in a conversation someone led first with some of their own struggles and then since then you've led first because you saw the power of someone going first totally yeah um you talk about there's some grace I forget the first part of the sentence, but like that helps you get through the day, but other grace that you can't live without it. Yes. Um, When you think of confessing this and it seems like this would be the moment where if I don't get grace, like I don't know how I would keep on going forward. If you're trying to categorize those two different types of grace, maybe you could say it better than I can watch the quote. Um, When you're thinking about the kind of grace that you wanted after you were honest to this, how did that feel to you? What, What was that grace like that, that craving for that, what did that feel like? Yeah. I mean, it definitely felt like oxygen in my lungs. It felt like hope for a new day. And I'll just say like, I, I didn't expect or, um, yeah, all summer I'll say I didn't expect my, I wasn't promised a happy ending. Like coming out with what had happened to my husband did not guarantee. First of all, I knew there would be consequences because there's always consequences to our actions. Um, And so there were definitely consequences, but I wasn't promised a happy ending, but I, I definitely felt like a mentor who walked with me through that season very closely and actually who I confessed it to first, who encouraged me then to go to Eric and helped me have kind of the courage to do that said you may not get a happy ending. I can't promise he's going to stay with you. I can't promise there won't be consequences, but I promise you that 
you'll have a life worth living. Mm-hmm. That on the other side of truth wasn't death, wasn't the end of the world as I knew it. Uh, or at least I had gotten to a point where because I had kept it a secret and felt so much shame and was struggling, I was definitely very depressed. I was on medication. Uh, I got diagnosed with situational depression, except for no one knew what the situation was, but me, which is kind of this wonky thing. Um, yeah, a lot of layers to unpack there, but basically I didn't want to live anymore because I, I just didn't see a way out. I didn't see a world in which coming out and saying what had happened would not result in just total destruction of my life. When in reality, the secrecy of the sin was actually destructing my life and robbing me of my life. Um, and I don't say that flippantly. Like I, I truly mean it and trigger warning for people who have mental health struggles. I definitely fantasized and started having like suicidal ideation and like, how could I leave this world with, uh, sort of the impression that I've made on people and the legacy, like how can I just leave and no one finds out about this, yeah. which again, now that I'm on the other side, sounds really freaking crazy, but I, I, I was truly not in a yeah. healthy headspace. So it, it does make sense that I got to that point. Um, but the best way for me to explain it is that there was like a tug of war in my mind, like every day where I'd get these like bursts of energy where I was like, okay, I'm going to tell him I'm just going to be out with it. Like I just, I can't describe it other than I think we need uh, those of us who are Christians or are trying to follow God and like be in relationship with God and all of that, the lost art of confession. Like I think yeah. it would be so helpful for people if instead of just kind of prescribing, read your Bible and listen to worship music and say the mm. things and read the, if we actually created more space for confession and self-reflection, mm-hmm. I think it would be, totally life-changing at least it was for me for sure for sure okay two things first of all how long before you confessed uh, i i think you confessed first to a co-worker who you'd asked to be a mentor yes okay that's yeah. the first time and so while you're having situational depression suicidal ideations yes. trying to like how long is from when it took place before you started to tell anyone yeah the event took place and it was 11 months later that i told eric i think about 11 months Timelines feel a little bit fuzzy, Damn. and that's what happens when thing when when any it, sort of trauma. It's almost it's, a year, like that's a yeah, long time. It was a long time, and you were very fortunate. You're working at church, Chicago, yep. right? Yep. And you had this woman who you knew that you lucked into asking her to to have a mentor role in your life, and yep. it sounds like she was the Yoda figure that you needed to guide you. I don't know Star Wars, but I assume that's what Yoda does. <laughs> um, but you had that mentor person. How would it have, and you can't obviously project exactly what it'd be like, but how, how do you think it would have gone if you didn't have a mentor like that in your life trying to navigate this guilt and shame and depression and all yeah. those things? To be honest, um, two things come to mind. I would have repeated the same thing because I wouldn't have gotten to the root to heal. So hmm. maybe not right away because I felt so guilty and I was so ashamed, but I think that living kind of in the dark for, you know, air quotes, like that life probably would have led me to probably because I would feel so worthless and so ashamed that you could go back to it, that I could go right back into the habit of finding security, which isn't actual security, but thinking that, you know, confusing love and desire and just getting into really bad uh, situations that 
I would be tempted and possibly make the same mistake again. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yep. I, I just think that in order to truly heal, uh, I had to get to the root. And she was such an integral part of helping me be brave enough to take the steps to get to the root. And that, I mean, there, gosh, there's so many little steps in there. And I walk through that journey in the first two chapters pretty intensely of the book. But uh, the second thing that comes to my mind is I honestly don't know if I'd be sitting here today. Hmm. Truly. Yeah. I feel like people often look at me or know me and they're just like, what? Her? Like, no. Like, oh, she might have been depressed, but like, no, there's no way it was that bad. Um, it was that bad. I'm 40, which means I've been around long enough to know that mental health can affect anyone. And no matter how much your life is built upon the truth, for a moment, a lie can seem very real to you. Yes. And I'm at that point in my life where I go, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like that, that could happen to anyone. And you're talking about like relapse, if we could use the yeah. language from the 12 step community. Addictions flourish in isolation. Totally. Addictions even if it's not like a traditional like substance abuse kind of addiction, but the cycle of sin, shame, darkness, evil, like that flourishes when you don't have someone pointing you to the truth. Yeah. And hopefully your story can be an inspiration for those of us who need to go, okay, there is a, an essential role in my life that needs to be filled with people who to- point me towards the light. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you brought up um, AA and the 12 step yeah, and yeah. all of that, because I definitely have felt like there's such a, uh, I would love to actually go and experience it for myself, even though alcohol is not something I struggle with because I still think that it's so, uh, there's, there's enough common ground and there's so much similarities in just the quote unquote recovery of an addict. Or for me, it, mm-hmm. I just want to say, I write this in the book. Like I wasn't a sex addict. I was addicted to affirmation from men and I would do anything to keep that coming. And in order to keep that coming, it meant sometimes, uh, yeah, just going down the slippery slope until it led to something physical, right? Like it, it's, um, nobody wakes up one day and says, I think today I'm going to be an alcoholic, or I think today I'm going to have an affair. I think today I'm going to rack up a bunch of credit card debt or whatever the case is. Nobody wakes up one day and just decides they're going to be the person that they said they never would be. Yeah. It happens when over time the boundary lines get blurry and sin gets justified or, or is just sort of like you live on autopilot and you don't even realize sort of the dark ways or the choices that you're making that are leading you down a destructive path. And that's exactly uh, when I look back and I retrace my steps, it's so evident that my intentions with this person initially were totally pure, nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I didn't set out to do this bad thing, um, but I think it's also why it's so important to live in a state of consciousness and awareness uh, so that things like that don't get so far to where one day you wake up and you feel like you've hit rock bottom, which is what yeah. happened to me. Yeah. And it's almost like that's a great reminder for all of us that we need continual, like you just talked about the uh, the practice of confession. And for some, it's going to the like the church building, there's a priest behind the thing and like you do it, the, okay, cool. Or it's, or for some of us, it's just intentional relationships where you totally. make a priority to go, we're going to get into all this stuff. But it seems like... It, no one chooses, I'm going to have an affair, or I'm going to have an addiction, or I'm going to do this. Um, but we make those small decisions day in and day out. And it's almost like you need to like constantly have these check-ins where you can go, uh, yeah, I'm kind of getting a little bit too close to the edge right here. Yes. And having those conversations so you check in. Yeah. And and I just want to say, I'm not saying that I should. I live in fear now and I'm just constantly like checking myself. I mean, I'm sitting here in a room with you and... 
I don't feel any sort of like, oh, I need to make sure it's it's not like that. I just want to say to to kind of bring it down to the level of most people like myself, when we're talking about more subtle addictions that maybe uh, aren't even seen to the eye. So like even with alcohol, you can see it. You can see when someone's picking up a drink yeah. and taking a drink. But with something like addiction to affirmation from the opposite gender that they're yeah. attracted to, nobody can see it. Yeah, It's very subtle. And so it's up to the person that, kind of knows this about themselves. Maybe some for someone else, it's uh, something to do with uh, greed or gluttony or I don't know, like name anything. It could, yeah, be, it could anything. be anything. Yeah, But and, you know, you know, I know the things yes. that I do where I'm like, yeah, I don't need to do that. And it's not, you totally, know. Totally, totally. And I, I, yeah. So I'm just saying like, I don't think people should have to live in fear, but I definitely just think that if we, I love that you mentioned confession doesn't have to be in a church, doesn't have to be with a pastor. It can be an intentional relationship with others. For me, a lot of that right now looks like my husband and I ask each other questions every Sunday night. We have these three questions we ask. It's a really fun thing that we do. It's just part of our routine. Um, But it creates an opportunity. It's sort of a prompt that if there is something, we can come out about it. And what I will just say for people listening is, and I'm curious if this would work for you and your wife, I didn't used to react very gracefully to things that he would confess but what I realized was that when I like freaked out or got really mad uh-huh. at him, then the next time he was not going yeah, to bring that to my attention. No, he's not yeah. going to say anything because he doesn't want to deal with the fight or my reaction. And so it's also been a really cool way that we've practiced how we react um, and, and show grace. And obviously he's taught me so much about grace in the way that he has responded to what happened early yeah. in our marriage and kind of dealing with mm-hmm. the aftermath. So yeah, it can look like just asking the right questions and holding the right space. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, your observation about word. I mean, train's a kind of a derogatory word, seems kind of pejorative to someone else, but we are educating others on how to expect us to react in the future by how we react right now. Totally. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so if you create an environment where you say something that um, isn't well received, like people aren't going to say it in the future, like that's just how, how it goes, which for, for some of them, that's why it's complicated to have your significant other be your quote-unquote accountability partner. Because usually my sin affects my wife more than anyone else. My issues, my anxiety, my fears, all that stuff, it go to her. So there is benefit to having someone who's a little bit more neutral. But yeah, you you have to create a culture where that's... that's, that's accepted. Yeah. And, and so like here in LA, we moved here a year ago. Like I right away got plugged in at the church that we started going to and I sought out a spiritual director and now she's that person. And obviously my husband and I still do these questions on Sunday nights, but like that's a place where I'm being held accountable and just being really checked in on and I can really open up and she asks really great questions and she's much older than me and wiser than me. And I, I want to be here when I grow up, but I yeah, um, want to have those relationships. You do. Yeah. And if you're in a place I hear from women or people all the time that are like, well, my friends and I don't go deep or like that would feel so awkward. I mean, you have the power. Any one of us has the opportunity and the power to shift a culture. And so and a relationship and a relationship. Absolutely. And so to start saying like to bring up intentional questions over dinner, just to kind of start, it doesn't have to be this really formal thing, but if you just like go to an interaction or a dinner date or a whatever with one question in your back pocket that can help kind of open people up and start doing that over time, you will shift the culture and it will become the type of community you have. You don't have to like go find it elsewhere. You can create it and cultivate it with the people you have in your life right now. 
Yeah, and most of us don't have experience with intentional relationships. And what I mean by intentional is what you describe, where you're like, you know what, we're not going to just do the surface level uh, kind of stuff that doesn't really get us anywhere closer to who we need to be. Yeah. Uh, okay, I got a question for you. Um, yeah. From, um, here's a lot in the book I read. I was like, all right, I, I need more on this. Mm. This is talking about uh, Carp. This is your husband, um, how he could have responded to this. Mm. Um, uh Chose, had he chose revenge or decided to call it quits, things would be much different. Okay. He could have done either revenge or call it quits and probably felt better, at least for the moment. Yep. But instead he embraced me and told me there wasn't. Um, what did you mean by saying he could have done either revenge or quit and he would have felt better at least for the moment? Yeah. What do you mean by for the moment? At least for the moment. I think when we're hurt, we want to hurt people. Yeah. When we're hurt, we want to do whatever's going to f- make us feel better and have a quick fix. Yeah. And so I think when I told him I was unfaithful, he could have gone out and been unfaithful. And in that moment, probably kind of just had this adrenaline rush of like, now we're even, or like, I don't know, somehow that feels better to run into the arms of somebody else. Cause she did that to me or whatever the case is. Or he called could, it quits and just walked away. Or yeah. called it quits and walked away. And that would have felt probably really empowering for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe a maybe a day, maybe a week. I don't know. Obviously, that wasn't our story, so I don't know for sure. But I wrote that line in the book because I think it's important that people hear. I thought through. Well, one, we've talked about it as a couple, but I thought through all of this, like, and it actually makes his response of grace that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that he wouldn't have felt better for the long haul, but the reason I said for the moment is because I actually do believe. I, I don't think necessarily. I don't want anyone to hear that, like they have to stay married in order for it to be a redemptive situation. But what I will say is that I think grace is always the right response. Whether or not it resulted in us staying married, which it did thankfully, which is what we both wanted. It, the fact that he did respond with such grace allowed us to heal, allowed us to experience redemption that has been very powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I included that. A couple weeks ago, I go, I finish a sermon, standing at the back of the church like I usually am. Someone comes up and says, okay, uh, I hear the sermon about forgiveness. Okay, but I had someone who um, abused my kids, and now they're end-of-life stuff. What should I do with them? And I was like, um, huh. Uh, that's, that's, that's the one, right? That's a terrible one. But the advice I gave is what you just mentioned, that – Grace is ultimately the best thing for you. Now, reconciliation is two different things. Totally. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same. Forgiveness is what I choose to do for you. Reconciliation is what we both choose to do for our future together. Absolutely. And so the abuser doesn't deserve reconciliation unless they're whatever. What you described, though, is exactly what I would have said. And it's probably, I would have felt a little bit peculiar saying my spouse needed to forgive for their own good. Which is 100% true. Right. But it's just, and that's not what you're doing uh, in the book, but you're saying what's true. Like it, it really is just, if, if I was just talking to, to Carp as a friend, I'd be like, honestly, it's best for you to forgive. Now what you guys want to do going forward is a different subject, but we all have to. Otherwise yeah. we're just going to get destroyed by resentment and cynicism and totally. And like what you do to yourself by just shallowing out your connection to someone else by having like a momentary fling or going for something that's just a one night, like in some ways, it, it, this is the cycle of sin. Like when you're choosing the way of love and grace, you get a different outcome than what, what that would be. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely am really grateful that our marriage was able to recover from this and that we're doing great and and we get to use this to help other couples. But what I what I always say too lately as I'm talking about the book a lot is this book is not about marriage. It's not about uh just that one thing and it's certainly not just for people who are married or want to be married. It is about caring for our soul and for me the journey of waking up to realize that my soul was not in a good place was that whole journey of dealing with unconfessed sin and that that's a starting point yeah. and that and that truly was just the beginning the, and it's ongoing work yeah and so when you have something like this and you don't want to be honest the temptation for some of us is to hide and yeah. to pull away and you make this great observation in the book that sometimes my propensity to hide is the very same uh, act different side of the coin but it's the same thing as someone who's been like braggadocious and and fronting like they're this person but both of them you make the argument they're they're two sides of the same coin because they're both driven by insecurity yes absolutely and, which is so right i think arrogance and insecurity are both like a reflection of not having yourself anchored into something much deeper and so you make the, the point that you need to find uh your se- security in something bigger yeah How, as you're trying to find security for you, what is the role of your relationship with God as you're trying to find security? Yeah, I I mean, I just realized that if you're trying to find security in a relationship or a job or, or with the way people perceive you or whatever, it is only going to last so long. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there will always be uh, kind of this moving target and gosh, that's not a secure way to live. Um, So when your identity is rooted in something that's really secure, for me, I found that in God. Um, It doesn't change. It's, you said it like it's an anchor. There's a weight to it. There's um, a trust that is there. And it's a really hard thing to explain, but I also talk about like integrity being a prerequisite for security. Hmm. So for me, that's the answer is having integrity Uh, which for me, a lot of that comes from spending time with God. And I think spending time with God can look really different for a lot of people. And I'm happy to share what that sometimes looks like Can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. How do you define integrity? When your private life and your public life match, when they're the same, So when there's not a disconnect. Yeah, character, integrity. Absolutely. Being uh, Kierkegaard, like, Purity is to will one thing. Like, Absolutely. So to, be, to be pure of heart. Okay, got it. Yeah, knowing knowing what you ought to do and doing it. Because um, I always say too, like I think just similar integrity when it comes to telling the truth is not just uh, not telling the part that's not true. It's actually telling the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I think too, like we all know whether something or not, like when we're living with integrity or we're not, that's something I think that our intuition was a gift from God to all of us and Mm -hmm. it can uh, steer us and help us understand whether or not we're living with integrity. But the reason I bring that up is I think it is a prerequisite. Integrity is necessary for security. If you aren't living with integrity, you will not feel secure in any area. Um, I definitely experienced that. I was the most insecure I've ever been when I was uh, both like in the trenches of sin and hiding what had happened because I wasn't living with integrity. But it seems like if you have like that cloud of like, I'm going to get exposed, I've got to keep Luke A and Luke B like separate, but what yeah. happens when they get in the same room and like the stuff that I'm trying to hide is out? Like it seems like there would always be this cloud of, I'm going to get found out. 
Yeah. And it's exhausting. That's why chapter six is called impressing is exhausting. exhausting. And that was my mantra on the internet long before uh, Eric and I were willing to come out with this publicly. Mm-hmm. I started using that mantra. And uh, of course, a lot of people kind of thought it meant like makeupless selfies, which sure, sure. You know, I applaud you post your makeupless selfie. That's a that's a great starting <laughs> point. But it was about something so much deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just named it. It's the private life and the public life matching. And for me, the work of that um, was a lot of different things. And I talk about those, but a lot of it has just been with like being with God and replacing the lies that I've either been passed down generationally or that I've picked up along the way mm-hmm. and I've believed and replacing that with truth and like actually flipping the script and rewriting negative scripts. You've got this interesting line from a woman who I think, uh, was a pastor you worked for in yeah. Chicago, Jeannie Stevens. Yep. Is that right? Yeah. Where she has this line where she goes, the mind will lie to you, but the body tells the truth. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which, okay, I read that line and I had to go back. Um, huh. Okay, the mind will lie. I get that. The body tells the truth. Yes. How so? So that story was, I was in Jeannie's office and she said, Amanda, how are you doing? And I was like, I'm good. Great. Like, let's j- dive into work. You know, I'm, I, we're both eights on the Enneagram and she and I have that high energy and we love to get things done and we can kind of skip the small talk and just get right into the work mode. And um, Jeannie was kind of on her own journey of really focusing on being present and slowing down and really seeing people, which I, I so much appreciate. And uh, what a gift it was on that day because she looked at me and she's like, she like, I think she even put her like hand on my knee or something. Like mm. it was very like just this loving gesture of like, she looks me in the eye and she's like, no, really, like, how are you doing? And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm fine. Let's get to work. <laughs> I kind of did it again. And, and, um, and, and to be honest, I did it partly out of habit, partly because of the way I'm wired. And then partially because I don't know, I assumed that she didn't actually mean it when she was asking. Cause yeah. I think we, yeah, no, it's just we, like- sometimes just respond so like instinctually and habitually. And anyway, she wouldn't take that as an answer. And she said, are you, are you sure? Cause your eyes twitching. And she pointed out that my eye was like crazy twitching. <laughs> I like talk about getting called out. Right. I love your her dearly. Eye, your eyes twitching. That's kind of a tell. Like she was just like, are you sure? Cause your eyes twitching. And I'm not kidding you. I broke down. I started crying. Yeah. It, and it's just like, she didn't even say anything like crazy. She just pointed out that my eye was twitching, which I don't even know if I realized my eye was twitching, but she pointed out like, you don't look well. Mm -hmm. Your body is giving signs that you're not okay. And what she didn't know was, and I ended up telling her and kind of opening up, we were dealing with some hardships in our foster care journey. And I was just Mm -hmm. so exhausted and I was, I felt so worn down and this was all post the infidelity stuff, by the way, we started fostering after we had um, navigated that. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we were foster parents and it was really hard and heavy. And Jeannie said that to me, she's like, are you sure your eyes twitching? But she did. She said, your mind can lie. Your mind can tell you, you are great, but the body cannot lie. That is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is our body. So Mm -hmm. we need to pay attention to it. Yeah. And that like changed my life. I mean, it changes the way I live today when I notice how, oh gosh, well, this might be graphic, but like if I am running to the bathroom uh, because I can't keep food in me a certain direction, like that is usually a sign for me that I'm really, really anxious and something's, something's off. Something's not okay. I probably need to slow it down, dial it in, spend mm-hmm. some time with God or being alone or just remove some stuff from my schedule. If my eye is twitching, it's oftentimes I'm like, Oh, I need sleep. I'm not caring for myself. I'm not living in rhythms that are sustainable. Yeah. So, 
oh gosh, it happens all the time. Uh, and, you know, and then I think back in my past, I talk a lot about my childhood in the book too, because that so uh, makes sense of who I became and who I am today. Uh, but I went through, I witnessed a lot of domestic violence. I nearly entered foster care due to mm-hmm. uh, one particular incident on my seventh birthday. But then again, my parents have been, both my mom and my dad have been remarried multiple times. And there was one particular time where in high school, I found out my stepdad was cheating on my mom. And uh, my mom, less than 24 hours later, she and I were in an apartment and that was it. And my life changed in an instant. Wow. And the reason I share that story is, I I showed up to school. I still ran track, still cheered. Everybody thought I was fine. I don't even think a lot of people knew that I, my life had just been uprooted again, but I did end up going to the doctor like eight times in, I don't know, it was like a very short period of time because my uh, lymph nodes in my armpits were swollen. I had ulcers on my tongue and then I couldn't actually physically open my eyes from the top of my eyebrow bone or top of my cheekbone to the bottom of my eyebrow bone they swelled shut. And this was a recurring thing for about six months. And it, it all eventually went away. Um, but there was never a real answer. And they said they thought the stress and the trauma the was induced, just impacting yeah. my my body. And so, yes, going all the way back to what Jeannie then said to me made so much sense. Your mind can lie. Your mind can tell you a lot of things, but your body doesn't lie. Yeah. For many of us, we've had a disembodied spirituality that is just like, oh, I believe these things. I have these ideas about what happens when I die, but we don't understand like there's an integration. And I, th- I think it's from Rohr that I first learned like the Latin root for the word religion is legion, like ligament. And it's like rebinding. And the idea of religion is that it brings everything back together. And healthy spirituality affects not just like what you think about what happens when you die, but it's how you deal with the words you say and the actions that you yes. do, the, the way you sleep. And all those things are connected to that. Yeah. Yeah. So the the mind will lie, but the body tells the truth. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, well, you mentioned in the book how over these past couple of years that have you, as you guys have led forward with your honesty that has helped others, uh, my hope, my prayer for this book is that it continues to happen and that your honesty is an encouragement. I know already that these stories are coming in from people who said, honestly, I've never been able to tell this to anyone. And I'm glad that someone like you is being willing to be forthright. And also, it's great that you have a happy ending and yeah. you, know, you and Carp and life is good with Shia and everything is good. And hopefully yeah. that's everyone else's situation, but whether it is or isn't, hopefully your path is illuminating for others what it can look like when you're freed by yeah. radical honesty. Yeah, that's my hope too, for yeah. sure. Thank right you. On. So the book, uh, Soul Care to Save, Save Your Life. Um, people know that I really love a song that your husband wrote called Can I Be Honest? <laughs> and you guys, said, I feel like you didn't connect the dots on that in a way that you guys could do some collab, but <laughs> hopefully... You still got time to rectify that. We we did not connect those dots, but thank you for pointing it out. I'm here to help. I'm here to help. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for having me.